Well, welcome one more time. Um, we are going to continue, actually, we're going to finish a conversation we've been having for a while here at Mill City called You Are Here. So if you haven't been with us, let me just explain what we mean by it. What we're saying is that wherever you are is where you are. You can't be in more places, like more than one place at a time, unfortunately. And so if you think about where you are and where you find yourself, the question we're proposing is, do we notice and do we realize that God is present in those same everyday spaces and the ordinary chaos of life? That's what we've been saying. Do we recognize and notice that God is present in our everyday spaces and in our ordinary chaos? And so we've been having this conversation about the different spaces in our life and chaos in our lives and the ways that we experience God or don't and what it looks like for us to pay closer attention and to grow in our awareness of what God might be doing. So we talked about noticing that Jesus meets us in our thought life, that Jesus meets us in our work and vocational life, that Jesus meets us in the midst of our uncertainty and the questions we have about the future, that Jesus meets us in those spaces. And so today we're going to be wrapping up that entire conversation with uh, the conversation I'm calling Jesus Meets Us at the Table. Jesus Meets Us at the Table. So let's pray before we look into God's Word together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you to this place. We do want to believe that you are present, that you are active, that you are moving in our everyday spaces. Help us to be people who notice that. Help us to be people whose eyes are opened and our ears are able to hear your voice. And help us to have the courage to respond and to join in. We thank you today for the privilege that it is to worship you here in this public school. We thank you for Sheridan and the school year that they've had. And God, we do pray for this meeting we have on Tuesday. We want to be an asset to the school. We want to invest here. We want the kids to be able to have everything they need to use this room as well as our church. And so God, we just pray for your favor and for your presence to be in that meeting and that we would be, as leaders, we would be attentive to what you're saying in that time as well. Speak to us this morning, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, if you took the community time question seriously, which sometimes people don't take mine seriously, it's fine. But if you did, I want to know who's the people who likes to eat breakfast for dinner. Oh, wow, a lot of you. Okay. Why don't we do, like, dinner food for breakfast, though? The people, who does dinner food for breakfast? Pizza. The pizza for breakfast people? Who eats the pizza for breakfast cold without microwaving? What is wrong with you guys? Like, come on, just put it in the microwave for, like, two seconds. All right, whatever. That's fine. I'm really not judging you. I'm only a little bit judging you. That's totally cool. Who are the people who completely skip breakfast altogether? The non-breakfast people. You're afraid to admit it because people are going to come up with the like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, which is not scientifically proven, I don't think, but it would be really fun to see people go at that later. So that's cool. Do it if you want. If we take into account even you non-breakfast people, you eat between like 60 and 80 meals every month. 60 and 80 meals every month. Some of you are like, that's where my paycheck went. 60 and 80 meals every month. And that means this summer, you're going to eat at least 200 meals just in this summer between now and and the fall when things start ramping up again. And it blows my mind that we're going to eat 200 meals between now and like the end of August because I just put something on my calendar for August. Has anybody done this? And I'm like, oh my gosh, summer's over. It's the worst. I've already got stuff in August. And of course it's not, but... I know that I'm not the only one that feels like I already have a lot going on this summer. There's a lot happening. Totally, I'm sure some of you can experience that. So in some ways, I'm like, man, 200 meals? When am I going to have time for that? But I think that this message I want to share with you today would be encouraging to people if you're like me, who sometimes look at everything going on in life and feel like, man, there's just a lot. 
I think today, I hope today is something that can be encouraging to you. I want to talk today about how Jesus uses the most ordinary things, including the meals that we eat multiple times a day, to help us see that he is working in our midst. Jesus uses the most ordinary things like eating, getting up, doing the things that we do to help us see that he's working in our midst. And we're going to look really clearly at how Jesus expresses this and shows this in some of his last few days on earth, this Jesus meets us at the table conversation. But today, as I conclude this overarching conversation we've been having, you are here, we've been talking about all these things. As I come to the conclusion today, I want you to take this one phrase home with you, okay? So we'll put it up on the screen. Joining Jesus in your everyday life is about a a change of perspective on what you're already doing more than a change of what you're actually doing. Let that sink in for a minute. Joining Jesus in your everyday life is about a change of perspective on what you're already doing, on what's already on the calendar, on the meals you're already going to eat, more than a change of what you are actually doing, or maybe an addition of things or whatever you might perceive. If we miss this opportunity to see God moving all around us, in our everyday spaces, in our ordinary chaos. Good luck trying to figure out what God's doing in those moments of need or those moments of crisis when you have a decision to make. Man, it's hard to find God in those places when that muscle of looking for God is so weak. What does it look like to strengthen that on a daily basis to be able to step into spaces sensitive to the voice of God? People who are more and more able to have eyes to see what Jesus is doing around us, the whispers of the Holy Spirit, in the midst of the chaos. I don't know about you, but I don't have time to add Jesus following into the margins of my life. Does anybody else feel that? If you have like a ton of margin, tell somebody so that we can give you stuff to do to help us, okay? But we don't have a ton of margin. Fitting Jesus following into this like parts of our life is not gonna work. It's gotta be a part of our everyday life. Looking for what Jesus is doing and then following Jesus' lead. That's what I mean by Jesus following. So I want to start today by looking at uh, one of the versions of the, the story of the Last Supper. It's going to be in Luke 22 if you have a Bible. I'll have it on the screen. I want to look at this story, and it's a version of the story that's told a couple times where Jesus gets together with his followers and eats a meal with them, knowing that he's about to be arrested and go to the cross the next day. We call it the Last Supper because of that. And he gathers his disciples, and you'll see the description here. One of the things I want you to pay attention to is that this is the time of the Passover, the Passover celebration, which the, the ancient Greeks or the ancient Jews would have been celebrating in the midst of the culture where they are not the dominant culture. There's a Roman and Greek culture, but here they are celebrating a holy holiday for them. Passover is celebrating the, the story in the Exodus when God's people led the people out of Egypt and there was a night when he's, his, God's spirit uh, traveled over the homes and the homes that had uh, the blood of a lamb on the outside of it would be passed over by God's spirit and the firstborn children of that home would be spared, all right? This is a really in-depth story, really deep. We're not even gonna get into that, but what you need to know is that this was a big deal to people who are Jewish. This was a very big cultural moment for them every year. And what we know is that even though there's some debates about whether or not the Last Supper was a traditional Passover meal or a Seder that we might call it today, we're not totally sure about that. People have kind of thought about that. What we know for sure is that Jesus is on his way to the cross during the time of Passover. And what you also need to know is that a traditional Passover meal would have had then a very important main dish, and that would have been lamb to celebrate what that lamb had done for the people back in the time of Exodus. So 
So knowing that, pay attention to this story. And what I want you to pay attention to is uh, just how that cultural experience would have affected their experience of this time, right? When something's happening during the time of a celebration, what might they have experienced? So this is uh, Luke 22, starting in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want for us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Jesus is inviting himself over to a stranger's house for dinner. That's just a funny thing to notice. Okay. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found the things just as Jesus had told them. It actually happened. And so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He'd already been trying to explain to them that he was going to go to the cross, but it was, not, it was not sinking in. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus continues on, and some of you know the way the story goes. He takes the cup, which would have had a form of a wine, and he says, this is my blood for this new covenant, this new promise that I'm making to you because of my blood that's going to be shed. And then he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Whenever you eat this and drink this, I want you to remember me. He says this to his best friends, these people who have been through all of this stuff with him. And so now we know, looking back at the story, what happens. But I want us to stop right here and say, notice that these ordinary substances, ordinary everyday substances, are the things, these are the things that Jesus says, I want you to remember me when you drink and eat this. Not when you have some special meal, but in your every, every meal would have had the bread in the cup. I want you to remember me that much. 200 times, perhaps, in three months. I want you to remember me every time you eat bread and you drink from a cup. That's how important being remembered in this way was for Jesus and wanted for, God, for his people. I love this quote from theologian N.T. Wright, one of our favorites, no, no, no surprise there, but this is a quote that he says, I'll put it up on the screen. When Jesus wanted to explain to his followers what his death would mean, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal on one hand and a dramatic action on the other. When Jesus wanted to explain to his followers what his death would mean, he didn't give them a theory or an idea, he gave them a meal on one hand and a dramatic action on the other. Do you guys remember what the dramatic action was that Jesus had just done? Anybody remember? Pop quiz. I heard it. Washing, washing their feet. He washed their feet for them. Which was dramatic, not because feet washing was dramatic. People got their feet washed before almost every dinner. It was just usually, as some of you know, by the people who were the lowest of low. Usually people who were uh, considered slaves or indentured servants. And not only just any servant, usually women, because they were considered lesser than the male servants. And oftentimes, if possible, a child because they were considered the lowest of the low. So what makes it so crazy and radical and dramatic is that Jesus is the one who washes their feet. So he takes something that happened all the time, like their feet being washed, and two very ordinary substances that they ate every single day multiple times to say, these are the things I want you to do to remember who I am and what I've done. The everyday spaces, the ordinary chaos. 
Now notice what was not mentioned. What was not mentioned on the table that perhaps could have been on the table? The main course, the lamb. Now we don't know for sure if this meal had lamb present, but looking back, I think what we know for sure is that Jesus clearly doesn't mention it, right? He just talked about the Passover and how important the Passover is, but he doesn't mention the idea of the lamb after he gets to the meal. And so I think what's so clear now in hindsight is that Jesus is the lamb. No life needed to be taken, not even of an animal, because Jesus was there and Jesus was present. And we know that Jesus is arrested later that night and he's tried and he's killed. And the disciples, many of them see it before their very eyes unless they were too scared and they ran away before they had to see it. They're devastated. How, no matter how much Jesus had tried to warn them that this was going to happen, they just didn't want to believe it. Man, I can resonate with that. There are times when I just know something's coming and I just do not want to believe it. There's three accounts that are really interesting to me now that we know the rest of the story. So we know that after a few days, Jesus comes back to life. He's resurrected. He comes back from this experience of being crucified publicly and he appears to his disciples. And through all the accounts of Jesus appearing, it's really interesting to me how many of them happen around a meal. In fact, there's three specific ones that I want to note. The first being in Luke 24. This is the story that we often call the road to Emmaus. Two disciples are walking on a road to Emmaus, and as they're walking on the road, a third person comes up next to them, and and the, the person says, what are you guys talking about? And they start telling them about all the crazy stuff that had happened in Jerusalem when they had seen Jesus, his life taken, and how confused they were about how that happened. And so they get into this conversation with this person, and the person is Jesus, and for some reason, they're not able to, be, to, to notice Jesus. It's like something that's keeping them from recognizing that that's who's walking with them. But then they get to their destination, and they sit down around a meal, and as Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it, boom, their eyes are open, and they know that it's him. And then Jesus, uh, Jesus is so funny. I just love Jesus. He disappears. <laughs> he just, poof, he's gone. So as soon as they notice that it's him, he's gone. And I don't, I don't know why Jesus does that stuff, but maybe it's just so that I can be like, whoa, Jesus disappearing next, that's cool. And they're gone. And then all the, those two disciples, they say, oh man, weren't our hearts burning when we walked with him on the road? How was it that we couldn't see that it was him? I think that's so interesting. Their eyes were not able to see, but their hearts were able to feel that something was different about that experience. There are so many times when I know, I feel there's something different, but if my eyes can't see it, forget it. Weren't our hearts burning when he was walking with us along the road and speaking to us? Then right away in the next chapter of Luke, there's a story where Jesus, poof, shows up again. They're talking about him and he just shows up. And he says, peace be with you. And then he asks them for something to eat. Can you imagine they're just staring at him like, oh my gosh. And then he's like, can I have something to eat? And somebody grabs a fish and it's like, here you go. Like, it's just crazy. Like he just appeared. And then he's just eating this fish right in front of them to prove that he was physically resurrected. And he's eating this fish. I just think that it's so crazy. And then I want to look at one of the stories just a little bit closer with you. And this is in John 21. So if you have a Bible, we'll go to that one. I'll just read a version of this. This is a, another version of Jesus showing up and then asking for a meal, okay? But there's a little bit more that goes on here that I think we should pay attention to. While I'm reading this, what I want you to notice is the reactions of the disciples, okay? So pay attention to the reactions of the disciples as Jesus is interacting with them. Because we're always talking about what is Jesus doing? What is God doing? And then how should I respond? Watch how these people respond. 21, John 21, I'll start at the beginning. 
Afterward, Jesus appeared again. So he's already appeared two times. Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Do you see a pattern here? The disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Which is kind of rude, maybe, if you've just fished all night. Can you imagine that happening on the North Shore right now? Someone can totally tell you haven't caught any fish. Hey, friend, caught any fish? So this is what Jesus does. No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Okay, can you imagine that same person giving you advice about the fishing? You'd be like, no, thank you. And you'd like motor your little boat away from them. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him where he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. So somehow there was already fish on the shore. You see that? Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, there it is again, and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Listen, I can do pizza for breakfast, even frozen cold pizza, but I am not eating broiled fish for breakfast. Nope, that is not for me. So if you're into the fish, I don't even want to know. Don't even tell me. Like fish, not for breakfast. I'm sure that's cultural. I'll eat the pizza, but not the fish. But here these guys are eating breakfast, dinner food for breakfast, in my opinion, and I'm not into it. I'm not here for that, but they are. It's a big deal because Jesus was already cooking on the shore the fish that they had taken all night to catch, and they couldn't. These guys go from eating the Passover lamb, one of the most special meals, right? Their life, their whole life, they'd eaten the Passover lamb. It was a big deal. It was a sacred meal. It was a special time. They went from eating the Passover meal, this Passover lamb, in this important sacred moment to being on an ordinary seashore, eating an ordinary meal with the lamb of God. You see what Jesus did there? I love Jesus. He is showing what I talked about a few weeks ago, that there really isn't this divide that we think exists of the sacred and the secular. What is fishing? The secular activity? What is eating fish over a fire? A secular activity? I don't know. But if you think about it, Jesus in the scene makes it so that it's a holy space, doesn't he? It's a sacred space. They're sitting around a campfire eating fish with Jesus. I just think this is such an important moment for us to understand this. Because it's so easy for us in the world that we live in to really believe that we're walking around through some, some sort of like, uh, like orbs. Like you walk into the sacred orb and then you're like, you're out into the like secular orb. Like, what is that? I really don't think that's a thing. I think there is sacred and there is desecrated. What does desecrated mean? 
de-sacred. You know what a desecrated space feels like, don't you? You felt that. But when Jesus enters, when we come into spaces and we notice what God is doing and we are attuned to the Holy Spirit in those spaces, those spaces are made sacred again or consecrated, made again sacred. If we go into our everyday spaces, assuming we've like somehow like exited an orb of spirituality or exited into some sort of separate space that is now secular, we're going to miss it, right? Because that presumes you shouldn't be looking for anything spiritual, anything sacred. Could a meal sitting around the table at your, uh, in your lunch room, break room, at your work, be a sacred meal? Not if you assume you're at your secular job. Could it be a sacred space when your kids are screaming about whatever they're eating and you're trying to figure out if they're, how their day went and all that? Yeah, man, that's messy. I believe that God's spirit is there, though. So let's call it what it is. If God's spirit is there, it can't be secular. If God's spirit is there the desecrated are made sacred again. And we get the opportunity to open our eyes and to see that around us and to join in. This is a privilege for us. There's just a few things that I, I think we can pull out of this, this story that we see here of the, the, the miraculous catch of fish, it's often called. Let me just walk through some of them and how I think this matters for us today, okay? So there's just a few things. The first one that I want us to pay attention to is that Jesus is present on an ordinary day in an ordinary location while people are doing an ordinary task. Because these guys weren't fishing up north for vacation, were they? (laughs) It was their jobs. It was their vocation. It's how they made sure their families had what they needed. And so here they are doing an ordinary thing in an ordinary space on an ordinary day. The days had gone back to ordinary because in their minds, Jesus was gone. There had been some really special days for a while there, but Jesus has gone back to the ordinary Are we able to see Jesus even in the mundane? How many of those 200 meals that you're gonna eat this summer will you notice Jesus at your table? Or even wonder if Jesus is there? This this conversation, you are here. The the reality is, is that there really is this thing about you can only be in one place at one time. That thing, that's what keeps us from not being able to keep these separations. We've gotta be fully present in that. We've got to be in that place. When you think about where you spend most of your time, put that, that grid up there for me of the, that we've had every week. When you think about the spaces in your life, where do you spend most of your time? Wonder in those spaces what God might be doing. If you feel like, you know, I don't see God doing anything, that's okay. Wonder about it. Genuinely ask. Genuinely seek what could God be doing in that space before you say, listen, God is not doing anything at my job. Before you say that, wonder about it. Ask, ask other people who you're in relationship with who understand who God is in their life. What does it look like for them? What area of your life do you sense God might be moving in? Maybe just pick one of them when you think about your life. This idea of the world that God loves. Some of you are really drawn to the things that break God's heart in the world, aren't you? So for you, that might be where your heart's drawn. Some of you, it's your vocation. Some of you, it's your family. The second thing I think we notice in this story is that sometimes Jesus asks us to do something that seems out of the ordinary, right? It it seems out of the ordinary. Jesus, we already put the nets on both sides of the boat and we didn't catch any fish. And then he's like, do it again, put it on that side. So then they do. And they, they do it anyway. And I just really believe that if it were me, I'd have been like, no, I already tried. Do we do that in our relationship with God? 
where God is trying to get our attention and say, I know it's been long. I know you've been waiting. Put the net out again. Put the net out again. I think this is something that Jesus might be inviting us into. What might Jesus invite you to try? Not to commit to for the long haul, but just to try. Is there anything? Perhaps it's to, instead of eating in your cubicle by yourself, like to to invite some other people to eat lunch with you for half an hour. Maybe you always eat lunch with the same people. What if it's to try inviting some other people? What if maybe it's uh, going and having, some of us have done this, I know you have, having your barbecue in the front lawn instead of the backyard, coming out and eating out front and seeing who you might see in your neighborhood. Just try something. Maybe it's going to the same spot every night this summer, like every Tuesday night you go to the same park or the same place and see who you might meet if you went there every week. The next thing I think we see is that our obedience might produce extraordinary results and that our nets won't break. That's what I want to say. I think this obedience, even in those little tiny things, even when we try things, I really believe, and I've seen it in my own life, that God's results in our life then are extraordinary. Ordinary things, ordinary response to God, extraordinary results. I think that there are times when we think something's going to be just ordinary and God does something extraordinary. There's a few of us, I know some of you are here, who a few years ago, we started eating in the same spot every month, just one meal a month down at the Claire Housing Home for People with HIV AIDS who are living in poverty. And so they house folks there. And then there's an, a low-income high-rise. And we just said, let's have a potluck once a month. We had a potluck once a month for three years. After just one year of doing that, 12 meals, 12 meals, it started to begin to feel like family. After two years of doing that, 24 meals, we ended up as a group creating a space for a memorial service and a funeral for somebody in that group who had died because we were their community one meal a month. And then a month, a a year later, we realized these people are not just friends, but they have begun to feel like family. There were two different people that made professions of faith to Jesus during that time, all because of 24, 36 meals, somewhere in there. This summer, we have 200. Sometimes ordinary things have extraordinary results. That's why something ordinary like this little fun, cheesy thing that I'm doing, like you don't know. You don't know when doing something like this might really have a result that you're not expecting. And then the next thing I want to say, what you see from this story, number four, go with it if you're sensing an extraordinary response. Who in the story has an extraordinary response? The same person that always has the extraordinary response, and that's Peter. He jumps out of the boat and starts swimming. And everyone else is in the boat like, oh, okay, we're coming. But Peter just gets out and he starts swimming. Something inside of him made him feel like, I need to do this. I need to jump in. And if there's something inside of you that you know you're supposed to jump into, or you're even sensing you might need to jump in, man, would you go for it? Would you jump into that thing? Would you jump into to, to things that might seem kind of like they're not that big of a deal, but you know it makes you a little nervous. Like that other couple in your neighborhood, you've talked, but you haven't had a meal together yet. Just jump into it. Join that club in your neighborhood that you've thought about joining. My husband and I started playing kickball with the local brewery team. We've made friends in these last two years we never would have made, even though we're terrible at kickball. But we still do it. What, what if you tried it? What if you jumped in? Maybe for you, it's just coming to second Sunday lunch here and, and getting to know some people that you've never met. If that feels like it's jumping into, off the boat, I get that. But do it. Jump into it. Go for it. Because guess where Peter was going? Right towards Jesus. And so might you be doing the same thing. Number five, assume our extra, extraordinary God works in the midst of our ordinary lives. They were doing the ordinary thing. 
getting up and fishing all night. You know what your ordinary thing is. You know what your fishing all night thing is. What is it? I wrote down some things. Being up sick with kids all night, writing your dissertation, finishing that research, making that deadline, planning those presentations, cleaning whatever the heck it is that got into that pan in the oven. That's your everyday thing you're always doing. Organizing that spreadsheet, caring for that grandparent or that parent, mowing that lawn, washing those clothes and dishes and counters and toddlers. Right? This, these are our everyday things. Do we think God cares? Some of you, your reaction is no. I think God cares. I think Jesus is with you in those things. And if we can't see Jesus in those spaces, how will we see Jesus in these other spaces? Joining Jesus in our everyday life is about a change of perspective on what you're already doing more than a change of what you're actually doing. So then finally, perhaps all of this, as the story would suggest, will lead to ordinary people like us with extraordinary lives. Because we're just ordinary people, at least I am. I don't know about everyone in the room. We're just ordinary people though. But might we live extraordinary lives because we're following Jesus in the everyday? I know what the world considers extraordinary. So do you, right? We know the world considers fame and money and power and, and happiness and the pursuit of being just happy or vacations or things. And not, and not even all those things are bad, but Jesus says, I don't give you as the world gives. I want you to have life and to have it to the full. What are the things that perhaps we could let go of those other things and say, what does extraordinary look like in the eyes of Jesus? Because maybe it's meaning and purpose and intentionality and adventure and wonder and growth in a way you didn't think you were going to grow and passion and grace and the ability to offer mercy in ways you never thought you could. And maybe it's even seeing beauty in the brokenness. Maybe that's what extraordinary looks like in the eyes of Jesus. And I wonder if we might try to pursue that. We just have a bunch of ordinary guys sitting on an ordinary beach, eating ordinary bread and ordinary fish with an extraordinary Jesus. And I think that sounds like us. John is writing here and making it pretty clear that that breaking bread in that moment was looking back to this moment of communion. This, this reality that we now celebrate as communion, pointing back to that Last Supper reality, that as they sat there around that campfire and they broke that bread, they thought about Jesus saying, remember me. This is who I want to be in your life. And none of them dared, it says, none of them dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And I believe that that can be any one of us. We're sitting across from neighbors or coworkers or our kids or our friends or maybe even a moment where you're sitting down across from God, just you and God. And we don't even have to ask, God, what are you doing? Because we will know this is the Lord. I don't even know why I know, but this is the Lord. If it can happen for them, I believe that it can happen for us. Those moments where our hearts are burning and we know that the Lord is near. That the Spirit is whispering to us and we'll have nothing else that we can do besides try to figure out how to respond. That's my prayer for us today. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna celebrate communion like we do every single week here at Mill City. This is why we do this. You have 80 meals a, a month or whatever it is, but, but we do this every single week to say, we get, we get it, Jesus. You're saying, remember us in everything. Every single time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, remember me. And Jesus here is saying, I will meet you at this table. Some of you feel like it's been a long time since you've been able to say, I see Jesus 
at my table or anywhere in my life. I want you to come. I want you to come and receive this communion because I think Jesus meets us at the table. If you're seeking after Jesus in your life, then you're invited to join in to communion here with us. Maybe you've never said, yes, I want Jesus at my table. This could be it for you. You can come up here and say, Jesus, I don't know what that means. It sounds pretty mystical and mysterious, but I want to figure it out. That's what we do this communion for. So you can come down, we'll form two lines here. You take the gluten-free bread and you dip it into the grape juice. And then we would love to pray for you. There'll be people on these walls who just love to pray for you this morning. So let us do that. So when you feel ready, as the, the songs are being played, you can come and join in communion with us.